Welcome, everyone. This is Michael Blue, and you've connected to the Fellowship of Kingdom Professionals, the podcast, where we are cultivating makers and shapers of culture. Prepare for a riveting time in the principles and practices of the King and of His Kingdom. You are about to be charged, challenged, and changed. I know you're ready. Let's go. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us this day. You've joined our hearts and our minds together that we might call upon you, that we might seek you, that we might strive to do that which is pleasing in your sight. It is not a gospel of works. It is a gospel of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And yet the same Bible, the same chapter that tells us that by grace we're saved through faith is the same chapter that says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So it's not either grace or works. It is through grace we do the works. And we thank you. They are not the works of the letter of the law, but they are the works of the law of the spirit of Christ, spirit of life in Jesus Christ. And so we thank you. Thank you for these professionals. Thank you for what they are accomplishing in the workplace, in the worship space, in every aspect of their lives. I ask you, Lord, that you would please uh, let your hand of grace let your hand of protection, let your hand of guidance be upon them. Let fame be brought to your name and let pleasure be brought to your heart through the efforts of these men and women. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Wonderful, wonderful. I see another saying that uh, he or she paid the light bill this morning. That's wonderful. Those of you that, that don't know to what they might be referring, uh, I had the awesome privilege of sharing the, uh, I guess, keynote, but whatever the message, the lesson um, at the 90th birthday celebration for Apostle Fred Graham last evening. And the title of the lesson was The Light Bill. And uh, that's what they're referring to. Light in scripture is symbolic of a number of powerful things. It is the very first thing that God introduces in the creation week. And God said, let there be light. But light is also a symbol of leadership in the scripture. <laughs> light is a symbol of leadership in the scripture. Um, and in as much as we were honoring a leader, we were simply talking about the fact that in order to be a light, someone has to pay the bill. That is, someone has to pay the price. Someone has to make the investment to be the caliber and quality of leader that the kingdom requires. All right. And each of you, each of you, you are the light of the world, Jesus said. I said, you are the light of the world, Jesus said. But uh, in order to be postured properly as the light of the world, there is a bill that each of us, I didn't get to finish the lesson, but uh, one of the things that came up in my heart was the hymn. The hymns of old, many of them had strong theology. Some of, some of them had poor theology, but some of them had very strong theology. And this particular one uh, 
ask this question. Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone. And there's a cross for me. So the hymn said, Jesus paid it all. So I thought Jesus paid the light bill. There's a cross for everyone. And there's a cross for me. Jesus is not going to bear the cross alone. He did his part, but there's a bill that you're going to pay. All right, let's move on. Uh, I stated this morning in the first session, I would encourage you when Brother Carlos, I don't know if Brother Carlos is uh, on right now, but Brother Carlos is the person who accepts responsibility to put the replays of the audio um, up. And then not only that, but um, Brother Carl Lee is the person who puts the quotes out from these sessions. So I honor these two young men, powerful and committed young men. Um, but I, I stated in the first session, I, I mentioned Brother Carlos to, to acknowledge him, but secondly to say that I would encourage you to listen back to the eighth, the uh, 715 session. But one of the things that we talked about is that the, the purpose, the master purpose, the macro purpose of FKP is to make sure that it is an in-reach and an outreach. It is an in-reach to the believer. It is an outreach to the non-believer. What do you mean? It is an in-reach to believer, uh, to the believer, to help him or her understand the magnitude of what he or she does professionally. Many times people think, I just have a job. I'm just trying to make an honest living. I'm just trying to take care of my family. And they don't realize just how powerful for the advancement of the kingdom of God that job is. As a matter of fact, they don't understand that job is a part of the kingdom. They think that maybe if I get somebody saved by working in this position, getting that person saved was kingdom. No, doing that job was kingdom. You understand? In other words, um, my, my own illustration, we, we, we convened a Black History Month choir, volunteer choir in 1989. And what began as a volunteer choir with me directing it for the Black History Program in February, evolved into Chosen Generation, a youth choir, a community choir, independent of the school in 1990 um, and 1991 in that vein. And, and it flowed and many, many young people were saved. And some of them are still doing great things for God to this present day. So someone would say, well, Brother Blue, that choir, the Black History Choir that evolved into Chosen Generation and the fact that people are saved and still doing great works for God, that was kingdom. That's why God put you in that school because that was kingdom. Yes, it was. But to the degree that I taught them English effectively, the degree to which I taught them how to interpret writing, the short story, the novel, nonfiction writing, the, the degree to which I was able to teach them how to write a coherent paragraph and all of that, that's kingdom too. See, it, it isn't, yes, the Black History Chorus becoming chosen generation leading to souls being saved. Yes, that was kingdom. But, but teaching them to write a complete sentence, a, a sentence that has a, a subject and a verb and express a complete thought, that was kingdom too. Because God needs thinkers. God needs readers. God needs writers. God needs those who master language, who master communication. So the kingdom part of it was not just the singing and the praying. The kingdom part of it was also making people literate and making the literate more literate. What I'm trying to say is that your role as a worker, your role as an employee or an employer, as a butcher, baker, candlestick maker, doctor, lawyer, whatever it might be, that's kingdom of God.
That is a part of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is essentially spiritual. Yes, but it is quintessentially spiritual and natural. Did you hear me? It's all pertinent to the kingdom of God. Good to see you, Brother Emery. Did you hear me? It's all pertinent. And so uh, what I said to the brothers and sisters this morning is that FKP is designed to be in reach for believers who don't understand that and then outreach to unbelievers who do not understand that every time they go to do honorable work, they are doing the work of God and God is with them and God is for them in their professions. Many people think that God is a million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, et cetera, uh, miles away from them. They don't understand that every time they take care of those babies in that childcare center, every time they take care of the elderly in that geriatrics context. Every time they coach that football team and get those little boys who otherwise could have been in the street with their pads on and, and their helmets on and so proud on their little pictures that they are doing the work of God. They're doing the work of God. Mm. Did you hear me? And so in, in, in teaching this from an in-reach perspective for the believer and an outreach perspective for the unbeliever, listen to what uh, the phrase that came up in my heart was. We are able to retrieve the marginalized majority. The marginalized majority. The majority of human beings with whom I come into contact, and maybe... Maybe your experience is different, but the, the majority of the human beings with whom I come into contact do not have a sense of divine purpose. If they have a sense of it, they have very low clarity with regard to it. The majority of the people with whom I deal, Pastor Brooks, good to see you. The vast majority of the people with whom I deal say to me things like, I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know what my gift is. I, and and that's, that's in the house of God as well as those who are not saved. And yet they are the majority of humanity. You know what, Dr. Hughie and Bishop Larimore and, 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 and Bishop Rocker, you know what I was taught as a child, <clears throat> either, either explicitly or implicitly? that the vast majority of humanity is going to hell. The vast majority of humanity is going to end up in hell. Whew. That's what, and, 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 and it was taught Pastor Thompson and brother, uh, Sister Falk and Elder, Elder McDonald, it was taught in such a way that we were almost encouraged or conditioned to just accept that. Just accept that. Not many people are going to really come to know God and all of that. You just, just have to accept that. Wow. Wow. Someone will say something like this. They'll say, well, you know, Jesus said that uh, straight is the way and, 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 and narrow. Straight is the gate, narrow the way that leads to life. Few that be defined it. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many shall um, go in there. Well, yeah, that is absolutely true. Now, Jesus said it's got to be true. One thing you have to understand, though is that Jesus said this before the cross. <laughs> That's one thing. That's not the only thing. That's one thing. Jesus said that before the cross. The old covenant was still in. He was bringing the new covenant. The second thing is, though, John, when he saw the people of God surrounded, surrounding the throne and all of that, those who've been saved, he said that he saw a number that 
no man could number of every kindred, tribe, tongue. Where'd they get them from? Where'd they come from? And, and what makes you think that God is going to lose with regard to uh, his creation? I've talked before and I'm not going to dwell on it, but, but, but um, I've talked before about the fact that, you know, I used to be, I used to hear people quote this one and it's in the Bible that hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure. I've heard that stated many times. See, hell has enlarged herself and opened her mouth. Without, well, that Bible says that the Bible says that, but have you ever thought about the rationale between the behind why hell would have to enlarge herself? You don't have to enlarge something that's already large, you enlarge something that's already large enough, you have to take something that is smaller than necessary and enlarge it. Well, Jesus told us in the book of Matthew chapter 25 that the lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angel. God knows how many the devil is. He knows how many the antichrist is. He knows how many the false prophet is and he knows how many the fallen angels are. You understand what I'm saying? And he made hell large enough for that. The reason why hell has enlarged herself is because there are people going that God never intended to go. The reason why hell has to enlarge itself is because God made it as small as he could make it. That's why it's got to enlarge itself because there are people who decide that after God's word and after God's spirit and after God's name and after God's blood, they still are going to make hell their home, so to speak. And so he's not going to force you. But the reason why hell has to be enlarged is because God made it as small as he can make it. For the devil and his angels. You understand that? I don't know how evangelistic we're going to be. I don't know how hopeful we're going to be about humanity when we expect God to send the vast majority of his creation to hell. What do he make them for? Now, I know I've run into trouble with this because there are whole denominations that teach. There are whole denominations that teach emphatically that God not only knew who would go, but predestined who would go to hell and meant for him to go. I'm sorry. I love those brethren and sistering, sisters, but I don't subscribe to that. Oh, no. If you don't have babies for them to be strung out on drugs and, and, and dead in the streets, God didn't have babies for them to, to end up in hell. He didn't do it. Now, could a baby of ours make some choices that end, that cause him or her to end up there? Yes, but that doesn't mean that was our intention. And it's not God's intention either. He said, he said, Jesus made the comparison. He said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more should your heavenly father? If you know how to love people, if you know how to wish well for people, if you know how to have goodwill toward people, then how much more the heavenly father? You understand? And he's not a loser. He's not a loser. All right, here, here's the point, though. Here's the point. I, I see you all in the comments. Thank you for, for sharing your thoughts. I want to hear your thoughts. Are you listening? Um, but but the point that I wanted to make was not so much about salvation, but 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 even so, it, it all ties together. The marginalized majority, the majority of people do not have a sense of divine purpose. At least you tell me. You're in the comments. You tell me. The majority of the people with whom you interact, do they have a sense of, when I say a sense, a clear sense that God put them on the earth with divine purpose. Put that in the comments. If the majority of the people that you know um, are, are walking around saying, I know God got a plan for me. I know God got a purpose for me. How many of you, the majority of the people that you know, do not have that perspective? They are the marginalized majority. Okay? 
if you know that the majority of people you deal with don't give indication of having any sense of God, having any awareness of their even existing, put no or what have you in the, in the comments. And see, let's go deeper with it, though. Let's go deeper with it. Not only is it true that there are the unsaved, okay, who don't have a sense of purpose. What I'm telling you is that there are the saved who don't have that sense of purpose because among the saved, there is that thought that those people who attend buildings like the one in which I presently sit, ladies and gentlemen, the only people that they think have a call of God, the preacher has a call, the pastor, all the associate ministers have a call of God, uh, the deacons have been appointed, uh, the ushers have been appointed, and the singers, you know, and so they may be specially anointed or specially called or specially chosen, but the majority, the majority of the people who come and sit among us, stand among us, do not have a strong sense of purpose of God upon their lives. When a preacher says he's called, or when someone who sings professionally or uh, a great deal says he or she is called, the congregation would say, amen, amen. But if a plumber got up and said, you know, I want to tell y'all something. God called me to open up these septic tanks and uh, and relieve these people's houses when they get backed up. Somebody else get up. You know, Lord called me to fry chicken. People wouldn't believe it. They, they would almost laugh at him. Just, just like, uh, like, you know, some of you attempt to laugh at me right now. And so we have the majority of human beings. If, if, if this assessment is accurate, the majority of people that we know that are not saved and even the majority of the people that we know who are saved do not have a strong, clear sense of divine purpose. They are the marginalized majority. They, they, they feel as if they're on the sidelines. They feel like they're, you know, they're on the periphery somewhere, just kind of watching the other people do life. Add to that, add to that the rich versus the poor the haves versus the have-nots, okay? Ethnicity clash, gender clash. Add to that, and we live in a purposeless world in terms of their consciousness. Purposeless. Causeless. You follow what I'm saying there? When there are some who are aware and then there are others who are seeking, they're seeking. And some of them that are seeking don't know that they're really already in it. It may be a karate kid kind of scenario. It might be a wax on, wax off scenario. In other words, they may be learning practices today, principles, excuse me, today that will not mirror the practices in which they learn them tomorrow. Hear me? I said there are people who are learning principles today who don't understand that the practices that they're going to really employ those principles in tomorrow are far larger than the practices where they presently are. Yet the principle is being learned in the minutia. The principle is being learned in the day-to-day. -day. The principle is being learned when you don't think that you're growing at all. You're actually in purpose. It's just that you don't fully understand purpose. Well, that's what we're here for. That's what this conversation is about. If you think it's about Brother Blue running his mouth for about an hour at 1130 on um, uh, Monday at 715, and we're going to present this better, okay? We're going to produce it better. We're going to put some bells and whistles and all that in it. But, but the essence of it is so much deeper than just the production and presentation. It's about us going after the marginalized majority.
those who don't have a white collar, those who are not recognized all over everything, but there is a call of God. There is a destiny of God. It's not a suggestion. It's a calling. It's an assignment. When, 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 when I was in room 310 teaching English and I told uh, those people who sat in those desks, uh, read uh, Beowulf, this particular section, page this. To, that was not a suggestion. That was an assignment. I've got to hurry. When I told them to read The Most Dangerous Game or Cask of Amontillado or some of those others, Amontillado, if the L's are pronounced a certain way, that's not a suggestion. That's, that's an assignment. The call of God on your life is not a suggestion. It's an assignment. And when they came in the next day, they were subject to have a quiz of some kind. A quiz to verify that they had completed their assignment. The quiz was judgment day. <laughs> their desk became a judgment seat. <laughs> oh, my, 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 my. All right. Let's go on. We have come for the marginalized majority. Jesus said it this way. He said, the harvest is plenteous. He said, the harvest is the majority. The laborers are the minority. He said, there's so many people who don't have a sense of direction. There's so many people who will do what? Live and die and not know why. Can you see it? And so the reason why I keep coming back to you, you know, one of the dear sisters said to me this morning that she was told when she joined the church here that Monday was my day off. She said, until she understood, I don't have a day off. <laughs> well, she got more of the truth in that second piece of the statement than she did in the first piece. Uh, you know, so, sometimes we get, we, get, we get some time off. But, but here's my point. This is not a game. This is not something just to kind of kill some time or, oh, God, no, no, no. This is about even you, even you. Some of you are in the marginalized majority. Many of us are in the mind. We still, we still do not see clearly what the call of God is upon our life. Many of us, many of us are supremely frustrated. That's why we try to open this up so that you can understand that you're not crazy because you have a sense of frustration because as the, uh, as the word said yesterday and, and last week, good gotcha, but better keeps calling for you. <laughs> oh boy, Let, let's go on, all right? We're talking about knowing one's assignment. Knowing one's assignment. John the Baptist has been our uh, object lesson. Notice in the book of uh, John, Chapter one, uh, chapter three, John chapter three, where we are now, we're dealing with the satisfaction, the satisfaction that comes from the fulfillment of the assignment. God intends for you to derive satisfaction from the fulfillment of your professional assignment. God intends for you to derive satisfaction from the fulfillment of your professional assignment. God intends for you to derive satisfaction 
from the fulfillment of your professional assignment. We've read it. We've read it in Ecclesiastes 5.19 and other places where it says that God wants you to eat, drink, and enjoy the fruit of your labor, the fruit, the outcome of your labor, fulfillment of assignment. This is the gift of God. Got it? And so your professional assignment has a satisfaction in it. And a part of that assignment can include, and if it's professional, will include material compensation, material increase. Okay? It will include material increase. Don't let anybody fool you. Please, I'm running out of time. Help me. Don't let anybody fool you. God has no problem with you being materially rewarded for the proper and excellent fulfillment of your natural assignment, your professional assignment. God has no problem with that. People do. Some religious people do. Some preachers do. Some churches do. But God, some sinners do. But God has no problem with you deriving material satisfaction from the fulfillment with excellence of your professional assignment. As a matter of fact, we read Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Deuteronomy chapter 8 in which God told his people that if you'll follow me into the promise, I'm going to cause you to abound in material well-being. And so for you to work and be a co-laborer with God and to be rewarded, that is totally consistent with the character of God. However, remember this, material increase is the lowest level of the satisfaction that God has for you. The lowest level of satisfaction that you will derive from the execution of your professional assignment is the material increase. Is that important? Yes. Is it necessary? Yes. And yet it is the lowest level because the satisfaction that comes from you fulfilling your professional Assignment will include the enhancement of lives. And when you begin to become aware that your life is better because you, excuse me, that someone else's life is better because you served, money can't buy that. When somebody comes back to you, I gave the illustration this morning of a, of a student coming back to you and saying that, I'm doing this particular thing now. I have this particular job now. I'm in this particular career now. I'm in this field, in this discipline now because of you. I'm a teacher myself because of the way you taught me. Mm -mm, money can't buy that. That's why people many times when they get those kinds of testimonies, those kinds of reports, that's why they begin to cry. That's why the, the, the note, they keep that note forever. They keep that card forever because they understand that the fulfillment, the satisfaction that comes from seeing those whom you touch abound and evolve and become, there, there's no comparison. That's not monetary. You follow? Okay. Uh, in John chapter three, um, someone came to John the Baptist trying to tell on Jesus, so to speak. And look at what they did in three and 26. The Bible says, and they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come unto him. So in other words, they seem to be trying to instigate in uh, John the Baptist envy toward Jesus. In other words, you know, he didn't even have a ministry. He didn't even have a church until you gave him your platform, until you said, behold, the Lamb of God. And now people are going to him flocking to him more than they're coming to you. It seems as if somebody's trying to start a little bit of a sense of antagonism and, and, and so forth. And John is not having it. John said this. He said, he that hath the bride, well, no, uh, verse 27, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. He said, this is the move of God. 
Verse 28, he said, ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I'm sent before. I already told you who I am and who I am not. I already know my assignment. I told you I knew my assignment. See, when you know your assignment, you don't get insecure when other people begin to prosper and flourish. You don't become insecure. The insecurity comes from your own lack of knowledge in terms of who you are. And the fear that perhaps someone else is who you're supposed to be. That's the ignorance, by the way. Nobody else can be who you're called to be. Unless you totally ab abandon ship. And even then, they can't be who you're called to be as you're called to be. And then he goes on in verse 29 and says, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom. You understand? And Jesus, Jesus is the bridegroom. He said, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. Don't you remember? I'm the best man. Why am I envious of the groom and the bride when I'm not, it's not my wedding. I'm honored to be included. Can you see it? Go back to the earlier sessions where I taught about the ancient Jewish ritual of how the marriage is consummated and the friend of the bridegroom called a marriage is made in Israel. Okay, go back and, and, and look into that. Then verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. But the last clause of verse 29 is the point. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. John said, I'm satisfied. I'm set for Jesus to be flourishing, for Jesus to be thriving, for Jesus to be hitting. He said, that's what I wanted to happen. That's what I was sent to help make happen. I helped to position him. That's what God sent me to do. See, so satisfaction materially, that's good. But satisfaction in terms of lives being impacted, that's even better. And the greatest satisfaction of all, the greatest satisfaction of all is knowing God is pleased. There's no greater satisfaction than knowing that God is pleased with your works. Even if others don't notice, there's something about knowing God is pleased. So I'm speaking to you now as a professional. I'm not speaking to you as a believer primarily or as a husband or wife primarily. These principles apply, but I'm speaking to you primarily as a professional, that as a professional, if you execute the fulfillment of your assignment with excellence, there will be satisfaction. The lowest rung on the ladder is material satisfaction. The second is those whom you serve being blessed, those whom you serve being uh, benefited through your work. The third to the highest level is those whom you mentor becoming. Oh, yes. Not only those whom you serve on the one level, but the servers that you train. In other words, not the ones that you, that you serve, but the ones who you train to serve. Okay? So in other words, you've got the satisfaction of the, of the material, then you've got the satisfaction of serving, then you got the satisfaction of training others to serve and serve even to a greater degree than you. And then the highest level of all is to know that God is pleased. That's the greatest satisfaction. Yes, 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 yes. Whew. All right. The next level, uh, level of this, or the next aspect of this, and we could go on with this series forever, really, certainly much longer than we're going to. But remember that to know my assignment is to know my sender, know myself, know my superior slash system, know my skills, my gift set, know my service, know my scope, know my schedule, know my satisfaction, and now know my successor. I want to close this session. I want to close this session talking about John's disposition. Now, we've seen John's disposition being satisfied in who Jesus is, okay? But I want to go further now and, and talk about John's disposition toward his successors. John has two categories of successors. Number one, Jesus is the successor. 
of, of John the Baptist, right? John is the forerunner. Jesus is the one who runs after John. John is the herald. Jesus is the king. John is the prophet. Jesus is God. You see it. Okay. So, so John has, has, has served. So Jesus is his premier successor. Jesus is the one about whom he says, I must decrease, but he, he must increase. He said, he that cometh after me is mightier than I, the latchet of whose shoes I'm not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Jesus is John's premier successor. But John also has other disciples. Multitudes have, have come to him and been baptized. And he has other disciples. Now, he, he designated Andrew and another disciple to go after Jesus. Remember, the Bible says in uh, chapter 1, um, verse 35, Again, the next day, John 135, again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him, John, speak, and they followed Jesus. See, John is sending them over to Jesus now. Remember, I told you that it takes humility to be able to, and confidence to be able to acknowledge, I've taken you as far as I can take you. Let me hand you off to the one who can help take you to the next level. Doesn't mean that you won't always love me. Doesn't mean that you won't always honor me. It simply means that I am clear that where God is taking you and what God is doing in you, I don't have all of the ingenuity or the genius. I don't have the skills, the talents to, to impart those things to you. Doesn't mean you're no longer my son or daughter. Doesn't mean that, 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 that we don't continue to have a relationship, but I'm not going to be so narrow. Listen, there's a difference between the squeeze of affection, okay, and the suffocation of obsession. I squeeze you because I love you, but I don't want to suffocate you because I need to control you and need to hold on to you. There's a squeeze and then there's a suffocate. All right. Be very careful. I don't know if you remember the abominable snow monster uh, in the uh, Looney Tune series, but he was about to kill that thing that he was hugging. He didn't know his own strength. Sometimes, sometimes a hug can become a hindrance. Sometimes our squeeze can become suffocation. You understand? And so no leader is to squeeze people until you squeeze the life out of them, you squeeze the future out of them. See, I'm, I'm holding you till you can't grow. I'm holding you until you can't evolve. I'm holding you till you can't blossom. I'm holding you till you can't flourish. I'm holding you too tight there. All right. And so John said, no. He said, I love you and you'll always love me. But you see that fellow going there? That's the lamb. That's the lamb of God. He's doing something I've never done and can never do. He's taking away the sins of the world. You need to follow him. All right. Now, fast forward. I, I need you to listen to me now. I'm probably going to need about five extra minutes in this session. F stay with me. Focus with me. In the book of Matthew chapter 11, verse 3, and Luke chapter 7, verse 19, there's a story an episode in the life of John the Baptist. In my opinion, it's a sad story. But it's a sad story with a glorious culmination and ending. Your story has episodes. Your book has chapters. I'm talking about the book of your life. And every chapter is not a happy chapter. Every episode is not a happy episode. In the book of Matthew chapter 11 and verse 3, and in the book of Luke chapter 7 verse 19, John by now is in prison. He's been put in prison by Herod because Herod has taken the wife of his brother Philip. And John said, that's adultery. You shouldn't have her. And as a result of that, because John is such a prominent voice, Herod takes him and throws him into prison. 
And yet Jesus' ministry is continuing to flourish. And there's nothing in the scripture that implies that Jesus did anything to try to get John out. But there's nothing in the scripture that implies that Jesus mounted a petition or started a protest or that he had people standing outside the prison saying, let John out. See, there's nothing in the Bible that suggests that. It almost seems as if Jesus did not take seriously the situation of John enough to take action to help John. Now, John still had disciples. How do you think the disciples of John felt when they knew that John's greatest successor, his greatest student, the one who he pointed out and said he's the Lamb of God, the one he baptized in water and the Holy Ghost came upon. In other words, listen, listen, listen. listen. Jesus is John's success story. Oh, that was. Jesus is the one who validates John's ministry. See, you can have this golden child student. You can have this person who's your mentee. You can have this person that you train and they do so well until it raises your profile. I mean, people say, wow, who taught him? It's John the Baptist. What? My God, I knew John the Baptist was awesome, but if he produces them like that, man, I need to go sit under his tutelage as well. Can you understand that? Jesus is John's star student, Jesus. And now Jesus is John's success story. And it almost looks like Jesus is ignoring the fact that his teacher is in trouble. Let me tell you something. Don't you ever ignore the fact that your teacher is in trouble. I don't believe Jesus ignored the fact that John was in trouble, but I'm talking to you. Don't you ever ignore when somebody who's been kind and mag. Uh, magnanimous towards you. Don't you ever ignore that. I said to our congregation yesterday, be good to everybody. Yes. But always remember to be good to them who've been good to you. And particularly, I will say, those who've been good to you when you were not able to be good to yourself, or they were good to you in ways that you weren't able to be good to yourself. Are you listening? It looked like Jesus was overlooking John's situation. He was not overlooking it. Both Jesus and John knew what John meant when John said, he must increase, I must decrease. John knew that his time was short. Jesus knew that John's and his own time was short. Jesus didn't live long after John did as far as his human natural life. They knew that their assignments had a schedule. Can you feel it now? Can you feel that John's assignment had a time limit and Jesus' assignment had a time limit as well? And Jesus was not going to interfere with God's timeline where John was concerned. Let me say it again. Jesus was not going to interfere with God's timeline where John was concerned. But listen to this. This is a precious story. Matthew 11 and verse 3. Let me just read the beginning of it. I'm not going to read it all. I told you I needed a few extra minutes. Uh, Matthew 11 and verse 3. Uh, the Bible says, um, verse 2, John, Matthew 11, 2, and it's, it corresponds to Luke 7, 19. Now, when John had heard in the prison the words of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Are you the one or do we look for another? See, John has disciples and they're watching what has gone on between Jesus and John. And the Bible says that John sent disciples to Jesus to ask Jesus, are you he that should come or do we look for another? Now, I have heard this passage and this story preached the following way, that John was so damaged 
and devastated by being in prison and damaged and devastated further by the fact that Jesus did not try to get him out of prison, that he began to have doubts about whether Jesus was truly the Messiah. And he sent his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the one that I said you were? Or should we look for someone else to be our deliverer? Now, brothers and sisters, I can understand how someone would come to that conclusion. I can understand how they could put that together. I don't have time to tell you about all of it, but I can tell you that I see it because many of them thought that the, I'm talking about of this day, they thought that the Messiah was going to be a natural deliverer and that he was going to overthrow the oppression of the Roman Empire. And Herod was basically a Roman puppet, Roman appointee. And so they thought that 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 Jesus, if he's the Messiah, he's going to get rid of all these troubles that are going on. So I can see how they could come to that conclusion that perhaps John had that misconception about Messiah as well. And so now he's doubting, given the fact that he's going through all of this, you're not going to do anything. Listen, go, go ask that fella, is he, are you really the one? Maybe you're not. Okay, I can understand how you can come there, get there. Because, you know, you go through enough, you do begin to question some things. And nothing wrong with asking a question now. And you're human. So the enemy will try to play with your mind. So you understand what I mean when I say I, I understand how you could get there? But but may I say to you, I don't believe that that was John's issue. Man, my, yeesh. I, I, if you give me just a little more, I'm almost done. I, I, I promise you. It's not because I couldn't go longer, much longer, but, but let me at least finish this story. I don't believe, I, I don't accept that side. I don't accept that version of it. Although I understand, I don't accept that interpretation. Here's what I believe. I believe that the one who knew who Jesus was when he was still inside his mother's womb and not even fully developed, I don't think a prison could talk him out of it. I don't think that being confined by Herod a fellow who lived in the deserts and ate dried locusts and wild honey. I don't think that the fact that he shut up in prison caused him to question who Jesus was. The fact that Jesus didn't come get him and didn't protest, as far as we know, I don't think that in itself caused John to doubt. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you that when I preach it, and I have preached it a time or two. When I preach it, I preach that John does not have doubts. I preach that the problem is John has disciples. And his disciples are beginning to have doubts about Jesus. Because, see, we love, I'm one of the disciples, we love John. And we know John was good to Jesus. We know John preached about Jesus. We know John anointed, uh, well, uh, baptized Jesus and the Holy Ghost came on him. We know that John pointed him out and sent Andrew and the other to forgive him his first members. You understand, uh, John's been good to Jesus. Not only that, but John is related to Jesus. He's his cousin. I'm talking about, I'm a disciple. I'm a disciple of John. And you mean to tell me that as good as John has been to Jesus, Jesus is not going to come and take up some time to see what he can do to help Herod. I don't know if I can trust somebody like that. I, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can go with somebody like that. I mean, I, I know what John said about him, but if he's no more loyal than that, if he's no more dependable than that, I don't know. Let me go in here and talk to John. They let me visit sometime. John, do you really think you anointed or you uh, announced the right one? You think, I, I know what you said. I know what you said, you saw, and you heard. But do you really think he's the right one? Then the other disciples said, yeah, John, I, you know, I've been thinking. I've been thinking. 
He hasn't tried to do anything. He hasn't got a petition signed. He hasn't done anything. He hasn't talked to Harry. As popular as he is, if he mounted a campaign, man, they could storm this prison and get you out of here. I don't, I don't know. And see, that word begins to go around. That, that word begins to go around among John's disciples. John says, he is the one. Oh, John, you just, you just love him like that, man. I think, I, I don't know. I don't know, John. I, I think you're too nice. I think you're too, too nice. So John thinks, I know that my life is almost over. I know the father is getting ready to take me. How can I make sure that these disciples don't fall in the wrong hands? How can I make sure that what I taught them and what I preached to them and what I tried to put in them, that when I'm gone, they won't lose it? I know what I'll do. I'll send them to Jesus and tell them, John say, are you the one? I'm not going to let him put it on them. I, I'm going to let them use my name. You, you ever had that situation where my friend had a question? Really, it was your question. John flips it. He knows his friends have a question, but he puts it on himself. He said, go ask him for me. Are you he that should come? Or do we look for another? See, all, all you got to do, if, you see, if you want to say that, if you want to say that John was doubting, then why didn't John ask for Jesus to come to him and let him interrogate Jesus himself? No, that's not the issue. It's not John's doubts. It's his disciples' doubts. And so John sends his disciples and said, you go ask him. Lord, I praise your name. I tell you what, I could do a number of different things right now. I won't yield to any of it. He said, you go ask John, Jesus. John said, you go ask Jesus. Are you really the one or do we look for another? Go ask him. And notice what Jesus did. He got the code. He understood the message. He understood the message. Look at this. Go to the Luke account so you can get it. Go to the Luke account, Luke chapter 7. Go to the Luke account. And um, Luke chapter 7, verse 18. And the disciples of John showed him all these things. And John, calling on him, two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? Look at verse 20. They did it. Verse 21. And in that same hour, Jesus, in that same hour, he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of the evil spirits. And unto many that were blind, he gave sight. Then he said, then Jesus answering said to them, go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to the poor, the gospel is preached. Why did he do that? Because he knew that John had taught them from the book of Isaiah. That when the Messiah comes, the lame are going to leap. The blind are going to read. The deaf are going to hear. He knows that John has taught them the signs of Messiah. And so Jesus knows that. So when John sends code and says, ask him for me, they're not asking for John. They're asking for themselves. Are you the one? Or do we look for another? Jesus said, I got it, John. I got it. He said, he said, stand right here. Stand right here. I was just getting ready to go into the, the healing part of the service. And he began to heal and deliver the people. And while they're standing there, they say, well, you know, John did say the lame would walk. He did say the blind would see. He did say the deaf will hear. You follow? He said, go back and tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. And then look at what he said. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. It's not John who was, uh, was offended. 
is these disciples who were offended, offended that John had not been rescued, offended that Jesus hadn't done what they thought that he should do. But now that they've been given these signs that confirm what John taught them all along, they are no longer offended. The title of the lesson is Reassured. Lord, I praise your holy name. God will do a thing to reassure you that he's the same God on the mountain as he is now that you're in the valley. He'll reassure you that everything that he has spoken shall come to pass. See, John had a premier successor named Jesus, but he had all these other successors and he's got to make sure that they don't become lambs that the wolves can devour. He makes sure that his successors are reassured that the thing that John lived for, he's now ready to die for because it's still true. Jesus is still Lord. Jesus is still Messiah. Jesus is still the one for whom John lived and died as his assignment. Can you see it? John, in the last few days of his life, made sure his successors were secure. And you and I, as we share with those whom we lead, We've got to make sure that if we see them destabilized by something that happened, even something that might happen to us, I feel like shouting a little bit. I'm not going to do it. I remember my pastor telling this story, and this is it. Elder Wood, you would remember it. Bishop Lambert, I know you remember it. Those of you that were part of Born Again, you probably, if you were with Bishop for a good period of time, you remember him saying that early in his life, he had been a great evangelist, a great preacher, and he had a stroke. And the stroke was a debilitating stroke. He was not able to talk. He was not able to move. The only way that he could receive nourishment is that one of the mothers would suck up warm soup broth in a straw, suck it up, drop it into his throat his mouth, and then massage his throat until he could swallow. That's the only way he could, could, could receive nourishment. That's just how debilitating the stroke was. And Bishop said that he was in his right mind. It's just that his body was devastated. And he said that as he lay there, because that's all he could do, he said he really was not asking God to heal him. He was just sort of in a mode of take it or leave it kind of thing. But he said that, one, he said the mother was praying for him. He said the mother kept saying, you got to raise him up, God. He's got to go to the nations. Lord, thank God for the mothers. Hear me, church. I promise you I'm closing. Mother Fletcher was her name. But he said, while he was in that bed, in the, in the bedroom, he heard a young lady sitting in the front room, we called it, the living room. And he heard a conversation. And he heard, listen to me, saints, non-saints alike. Bishop said he heard, he was Elder Barber at that time. He heard that young lady say, if God doesn't heal Elder Barber, I question whether there even is a God. After all, God, has used him to do and how he's preached and been faithful. If God doesn't heal him, I don't even know whether I believe there is a God. My pastor said that as he lay upon that bed and he heard that young lady say that, that was the first time that he got a mind to ask God to raise him up. He said, Lord, if you'll heal me long enough for me to get up and preach one more sermon, Let me be able to tell that young lady that it doesn't matter what happens to me. God is still God. God is still worthy of your praise. That's what John 
was saying to his disciples. He was saying, fellas, regardless of what happens to me, you've got to know that Jesus is still the anointed one. Jesus is still the Messiah. And everything I preach to you about who he is, he still is. Wait, even when he doesn't act like it, even when it doesn't look like it, he still is who I told you he is. That was John securing his successors. And so there we have it. John knew his assignment. He knew his sender. He knew himself. He knew his superior. That's Jesus. He knew the system. Ultimately, the kingdom of God, redemption in the kingdom. He knew his skills. He knew his service. He knew his scope. He knew his schedule. He knew his satisfaction. And now he knows that his successors are all right. They're no longer disciples of John. They are now disciples of Jesus. Oh my, thank God for his holy word. Father, I've attempted to share this, this insight. And I pray, oh God, that someone has been encouraged today, that someone has been strengthened today. Let your will in our lives be done. Let us fulfill our assignment with the same level of excellence that John fulfilled his. Thank you, Lord. Let us raise up successors who will follow after us, believing in the same Jesus that we've attempted to model before them and teach and preach before them. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. One more thing. There's always one more thing. But one more thing. When the disciples went back, Jesus started talking about John. When the disciples went back to John, Jesus started talking about John. And to make a long story short, verse 28, Jesus said, for I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Lord, that sounds like that fellow completed his assignment. Then he said, but he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That doesn't make John a nobody. It means that John succeeded in shifting from the law of Moses to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We'll talk again. Until we meet again, this is Michael Blue encouraging you to go forth today and lead. Make the name of Jesus Christ glorious. Make the career of Satan ever more brief and ever more miserable. Together, we shall bring pleasure to his heart and fame to his name. Until we meet again, may the peace of God go with you. Thank you for listening to the Fellowship of Kingdom Professionals, FKP, the podcast. If you'd like more engagement, click the link in the show notes join like-minded professionals in the FKP Facebook group. Follow us at Bishop M.A. Blue on all platforms. Also join the FKP Weekly Conversation Live every Monday at 11.30 a.m. Eastern on Facebook Live and on YouTube. Finally, be sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. May God bless you until we meet again.